0: Hello, this is Mike, previously known as Spartan.
1: And this is Sam, previously known as Walla. Please be advised that after episode 10, Knight is no longer with the show.
0: We have chosen to keep the episodes in which they co-hosted intact for continuity and to make as many episodes as possible available to the listeners. Thank you. Hello and welcome to Hardtack episode 7, Unconventional Military Vehicles. I am your host Spartan and with me today is my co-host Walla. Knight is currently on vacation, getting in some travel time around the United States, but will return for episode nine. Walla, are you ready for some weird transportation?
1: Oh, yeah. Should be interesting.
0: <laughs> yeah. So I know I know you brought a uh, a lot to the episode.
1: Yes. A big variety of uh, vehicles on the land, in the air, and in the sea.
0: Uh, yeah. This ought to be fun. This ought to be a really good one. Um It's going to be a bit more easygoing after two weeks of episodes that saw a deployment to the Philippines and later clandestine spy operations in the East. So strap in and we will get rolling. Hardtack is a military history podcast and contains mature themes, content, and some crude language. Listener discretion is advised. We do not claim to be experts in any of the topics discussed. The opinions and analysis expressed are that of the participants alone. Now, put on your Kevlar, secure your Lickies and Chewies, and prepare to take cover for this episode of Hardtack. From ancient to modern times, innovators have dreamt up a wide variety of vehicles as means of travel, for the transport of goods and material, or for the simple sake of entertainment. Militaries have not been immune to the innovative itch and have had their fair share of unique, inventive vehicles built with a specific task in mind aimed at benefiting operations. However, not all of these vehicles were successful creations. Monstrosities have lumbered across the ground, gracelessly flown through the air, and plowed through the currents of the Earth's waters, both successfully and with disastrous results. In this episode, we're going to visit a variety of these vehicles and explore their designs and intended purposes, battlefield usage, and their successes and or failures. We'll also spend some time enjoying statements from those that operated the oddities. Without getting into a conversation about who invented the wheel, uh, we can take a look at evidence of the first wheeled vehicles and intended for use on land. A little bit of history, the first wheeled vehicles began showing up around 3500 to 3350 BC, so over 5000 years ago, across both Europe and Asia. It is unclear whether or not it was a simultaneous emergence, where different peoples discovered the technology in isolation from each other, or more of a fast-paced adoption of new technology as it spread uh, across multiple continents. No particular person or persons have ever been credited with the invention of the wheel, for obvious reasons. But there is evidence early on, and the question is, what was the evidence? It wasn't the remains of a vehicle itself. Instead, we came to learn the first wood vehicles through art, which is typically the case. An ancient artifact known as the Bronosis Pot was discovered in a Neolithic village in Poland and uh, was dated to have been created between 3635 and 3370 BC. On the pot was a rudimentary drawing, and it was drawn from a bird's eye perspective, so looking... Uh, from the top down of the image uh, of a vehicle with wheels drawn on the sides. Uh, There were also clay tablets found in Uruk, or Uruk, uh, forgive again my pronunciation on that, an ancient Sumer city east of the Euphrates River with indications of wheeled vehicles etched into them. Here we have both Polish and Iraqi uh, history that have provided us with the earliest indications of wheeled vehicles in human history. Um, which which is interesting because the two nations are very different and, and there's a pretty significant degree of separation uh, between the two. There we have a very dry history of the first wheeled vehicles, uh, but we'll move on and we'll kick things off and the spirit of wheeled vehicles with land-based shenanigans because that's what this whole episode is going to be from this point forward is shenanigans.
1: <laughs> Damn straight.
0: It's true. All right. I'm going to start off with... The first land vehicle that I researched, the Sims Motor War Car. It was a British armored car that looked more like a wheeled boat. Um, I don't think I'm wrong in that. I don't, I don't know what your thoughts are on that, uh, Walla, but it looks like a boat to me.
1: Yeah, I mean, like I have to admit, <laughs> it, like it looks like a giant metal bucket. You know, they yeah. literally just like added some wheels and some turrets, and they were like, we good? This <laughs> we good <get> to go.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, looking at it, it, it's clunky. It's not what you would call easy on the eyes. Um, it, very much lacking in the aesthetics department. Right away, it is obvious what they were going for. They wanted a mobile gun with superior protection for the occupants. Uh, you can see the wheels sticking out the bottom. I don't know, man. I, I, I might have just shot the wheels out. Like. I, <laughs> I feel like it would have been pretty easily disabled, but you never know. You mm-hmm. don't know, right? So, yeah. Uh, the Sims was the first armored car built. Its name comes from its designer, F.R. Sims, uh, whoever that is, who worked with Vickers, Sons, and Maxim of Barrow, uh, a British company that, again, I, I don't, fuck if I know. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> well,
1: yeah, yeah yes, whatever. whatever. Yeah.
0: Uh, but, yeah, so he, he worked with this company to bring the design to life in 1899. Uh, luckily, the life was very short for obvious reasons. Um, mm. It was built on a one-of-a-kind Daimler chassis uh, with a German-built Daimler motor. So um, it's a hybrid. That's
1: interesting.
0: German technology. Uh, before Volkswagen, we we had the Sims Motor War car, I guess.
1: That's crazy. Okay. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I don't know anything about Daimler, but there you go. Yeah. Uh, so the vehicle was conceptualized for use in the Second Boer War. Uh, there were two Boer Wars, and it, there were wars fought uh, between the British Empire against Dutch settlers of two independent Boer Republic uh, Republics. And here's the thing. It didn't actually get used in the Boer Wars. During production, the bulky land boat had multiple <laughs> issues. Part. It's a land boat. It had multiple issues, and it was actually involved in an accident, uh, which caused the prototype that you see in the photo, or if you look it up, uh, t- it caused it to not be completed until 1902, after the Second Boer War had already ended.
1: So, so. what kind of accident was it? Like, did it crash? It, it, and w- like, that's what, what
0: it's. It said a road accident. Now, I don't know if right. they hit another vehicle. If they did, that other vehicle was probably decimated. Yeah. <laughs> all it said was road accident you know (laughs) i don't know
1: yeah uh it might it must have been bad enough for it to not being completed though so yeah
0: they i i I did see uh in production they also had issues with the gearbox so i guess like uh shifting um that that, that caused some some issues not that
1: wow okay where would the gearbox even go like
0: See, I don't know. That's the thing. You never get to see the inside of this, do you?
1: (laughs) 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 Okay. So we could just got to guess really of where it might be. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah.
0: Talking about the armor for the vehicle. It used Vickers six millimeter thick armor uh, and it was powered by a four cylinder, super powerful, right? Mm 3.3 liter. Get ready for this. 16 horsepower. Canstead Daimler engine. Wow. That's, That's German
1: oh it's German
0: it's German again
1: some more German elements to this I'm not sure what part of this was
0: yeah I don't know what part of this was actually British (laughs) maybe just the armor (laughs) so 16 horsepower what does that mean for traverse speed the Hulk topped out at get ready get ready everybody nine miles per hour or
1: oh wow
0: 14.5 kilometers per hour
1: that's wow that's very fast
0: Slow down. Slow down, everybody. (laughs) Hold on tight. The only truly impressive aspect was its armament, which consisted of two Maxim guns mounted in two turrets with 360 degree traverse. Allegedly, it also had a QF1 pounder or pom-pom autocannon, as it was known, uh, because of the sound it made when it discharged its shell. Um, But that's disputed. That's disputed. A QF1-pounder auto cannon discharged a 37mm caliber shell and could fire 300 rounds per minute, which at the time was pretty substantial. The Sims Motor War car required a crew of four to operate, which is kind of silly. The <laughs> awkward car was 28 feet in length, and it weighed 5.5 5 tons.
1: Wow. Okay, that's a big, big guy.
0: Yeah, 5.5 5 tons for a whopping 9 miles per hour. For those interested in the origins of the Sims Motor War car, take some time to search the Sims Motor Scout, a 1.5 horsepower motorized quadricycle. Look, look that one up. It's a bicycle with four wheels. The quadricycle had an armored Maxim machine gun attached to the front. And if you look at a photo of this thing, it seats a driver of one with no crew. And the driver has to control the vehicle while aiming a Maxim gun through a small peephole built into the shield. So this guy is one arm driving this quadricycle and firing a gun through a small peephole. It's wow. it's really silly. There's <laughs> photos of this in black and white. It's hysterical.
1: I'm um, definitely going to look at that later.
0: <laughs> you, you're going to have to. It's innovative, um, but no, just no.
1: <laughs> just no. That's it. No more com- comments. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> So.
0: all right. Our next uh, land vehicle is the Vespa 150 Tap. Uh, for the listener's sake, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you this question: Walla, are you familiar with the brand name Vespa?
1: Yeah, isn't it like a scooter brand or something? Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> so you know that you know where this is going. Oh yeah. <laughs> all right. According to Vespa.com, and this is this is straight off their website. Vespa is quote 75 years young and From the moment it burst onto the scene in a nation that was in a post-war rebuilding phase and brimming with ideas, creativity, and hope, Vespa has represented a zest for life and a desire to embrace the future. It has become an icon of freedom and emancipation for young people the world over, combining effortless, distinctive, made-in-Italy style with cutting-edge technology." Honestly, that sounds like a whole bunch of fluff and sensational bullshit. But hey,
1: Mm.
0: (laughs) good job. That's marketing for you.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um,
0: The name Vespa means wasp in Italian. um, And the Vespa evolved from a single model motor scooter manufactured first in 1946 to a full line of scooters that, that we still have today. So how does this fit in with the episode's theme? Two words, combat scooter. The Vespa 150 Tap was a standard Vespa scooter, so nothing out of the ordinary, but (laughs) it boasted a 150cc motor, but came with an additional upgrade that was definitely not available to the average consumer. This thing had a fucking (laughs) 75mm Mark 20 recoilless rifle mounted on it, which is why I have lovingly designated it the Boom Scooter. (laughs) It's the boom scooter. Look at the picture. <laughs> that
1: the Look at the yeah, picture. Yeah.
0: That's a boom scooter.
1: Right. So, so is that the turret there? The, the long, the, whatchamacallit?
0: That is a 75 millimeter Mark 20 recoilless rifle.
1: Yes. Wow. Okay. Right. So they, so they would drive to a place, stop, and they'd like mount this thing somewhere. Yes. And then they'd, okay. Right. Okay.
0: And I'm going to, I'm going to get to that. It's, it's really interesting actually. So. <laughs> okay. Yeah, so here we have the boom scooter. The 150 TAP was conceptualized and produced for deployment in the Algerian War or Algerian War of Independence. Uh, What that was was a war of decolonization that took place between 1954 and 1962. But the boom scooter here was used against the Algerians who were seeking independence, which I, I thought was ironic considering that the Vespa statement was that their scooter was an icon of freedom. Ooh. So, there's that. From softrep.com, quote, France wanted a fast-moving anti-armor weapon that could be parachuted behind enemy lines for use with French paratroopers, which have a very specific name that I'm not going to try and pronounce, but um, the name ended up being abbreviated to, to TAP, which is why it's called the Vespa 150 TAP. It was a bike powered by 145.5 cubic centimeter single-cylinder two-stroke engine with a rotary valve design and speed reaching up to 40 kilometers per hour, or just under 25 miles per hour in freedom speak. It also had a bulletproof reinforced frame and eight-inch tires. The highlight, of course, was the M20 75 millimeter recoilless rifle. This was a United States-made Light anti armor weapon mounted to the front and then under the seat through a hole. Uh, The high powered weapon was light and can be easily carried by scooter, which is ridiculous now that I'm saying that out loud. Mm -hmm. It could also fire smoke, high explosive, and heat anti tank rounds. Plus, manufacturing the scooters was very cheap. Uh, It was about $500 at the time, which for military equipment. Yeah, right? For military equipment, that's dirt cheap. Now, as we learned in Episode 3, uh, Wallace's favorite episode of The Great Umu War, firing a mounted machine gun and a moving vehicle over rough terrain is not an efficient method in culling an enemy's forces. The intent was not to fire the 75mm rifle while moving. Rather, the French intended the scooter to quickly buzz because it's called a WASP.
1: Oh oh my
0: god. You like that?
1: Excellent. Thanks. Very nice.
0: Yeah, so the French intended the scooter to quickly uh, buzz from one location to another on the scooter, then to dismount, prop up the rifle, fire on the enemy, then hop back on the Freedom Scooter and locate another target. The rifle was effective at penetrating the armor of T-54, 55 and T-62 tanks, which were in use during this war. So um, as goofy as the scooter is, um, the gun was
1: pretty effective.
0: Yeah, yeah. What, what I what I thought was interesting was um, the scooters were actually dropped in pairs, and they were dropped in pairs with two soldiers. One soldier carried the seventy five millimeter rifle on their scooter, and the other would carry the tripod with the seventy five millimeter uh, round on their scooter.
1: Uh, okay, right. I thought there was like a maybe there's like another seat somewhere, maybe a sidecar that they yeah, would have yeah. attached. To <laughs> but,
0: there's no room for There's
1: two, two scooters, right? Two scooters.
0: So it's not the boom scooter. It's the boom scooters. One couldn't operate without the other. Yeah. That's the boom scooter. Pretty cool.
1: Very interesting. Yeah. All right. Well. What do
0: you you got? What do you got?
1: uh, (laughs) Are you prepared? Are you ready?
0: No. Yes.
1: Because I I am bringing Italian tankettes to this little section. So
0: Tankettes. Like baby (laughs) tanks.
1: baby tanks yeah essentially oh. yeah so basically these little tanks saw combat in world war ii um pictured here is the <laughs> l334 34... <laughs> what look at that thing
0: <laughs> it looks like a toy
1: yeah it does look, look like the toy that you get with the little army soldiers yeah. <laughs> um yeah, it's got like the little little nozzle on there. I think I think that's the. I don't know if you know what I'm referring to.
0: I, I do. I, of, I don't know if that's a gun or a, like a like a sighting I, device. I, I, what?
1: Yeah, Tell like, everybody what this it, tank like, is before like, we get is it into binoculars. it. <laughs> like, is it binoculars or is it the turret? I don't know. Um, <laughs> okay, so basically the the L three thirty five. It was basically an Italian tanket that saw combat before and during World War Two. Although it's designated as a light tank by the Italian army. It oh no shit. Turretless totally, <laughs> It's turretless configuration, uh weight and firepower make it closer to contemporary tankers. Um so it was kind of inadequate in combat for having yeah. too thin of too, <laughs> firstly for having too thin of armor. Um, but also it's weak armament of only having machine guns. So.
0: Okay, okay. Yeah.
1: And so here is another image. Um, oh
0: my God.
1: So this is basically, so it it can only carry one person, I think.
0: Yeah. yeah, oh. yeah no shit. <laughs> like
1: it, it looks like it, it's so strange because it looks like, I, I don't even know how to explain it but well, so you can yeah, see in it, this
0: picture um in the foreground there's a, like a little mm. window port that's open so that's where they sighted out of and then
1: yeah
0: in the previous picture they didn't have the gun attachment on the front which you can see in the background here yeah yeah so th- that, um, in order to shoot this because it's turretless you had to rotate mm. the entire tank
1: yeah so that could also make it a little bit ineffective in, in combat as well potentially yeah, yeah. <laughs> like oh i'm not an expert uh like in any sense but i'd assume that would be very not very useful in combat
0: no ah, you'd so. be surprised i mean there's a lot of turretless tanks that have been used or like tank destroyers that that they they, they, they can't swivel because it's turretless but uh the firepower uh in this case there's it, it looks like a pea shooter it's uh... <laughs>
1: all right Glorified pea shooter, yeah, with a little bit of armor. <laughs> um. So yeah, so that's basically the L thirty, uh, L three thirty five variation of tankettes. Let's take a look at myas and Morris variations. If I'm pronouncing that right, I'm sorry if I'm not. Sounds good to me. So. <laughs> The Mayas was launched by the Ansaldo company in 1935 and came in uh, two possible versions. Are you okay? Yeah. Just... <laughs> um, the photo. The Myers... I,
0: I wasn't ready for that.
1: <laughs> oh, trust me, just just wait. There's good stuff to come. <laughs> yeah. So the Mayas and the Morris um, differed only in armament. Uh, both vehicles were propelled by a single 250cc Ferrera Petrolendron, which <laughs> produced 5 horsepower at 3000 RPM with a Magne- Mag- Magento Morelli ignition. So do you have any guesses on what uh, kind of brand Ferrera is?
0: <laughs> don't tell me it's Ferrari like precursor.
1: <laughs> no, I don't think so. I don't think it's a precursor to Ferrari. Yeah, so basically, it's a brand of Italian racing uh, motorcycle.
0: Oh, okay.
1: <laughs> so, um, yeah, so it was it was capable up to of going up to five kilometers per hour, or three miles. for Those that need the <laughs> translation, Holy for it, shit. and and two point two kilometers um, <laughs> per hour, and or. <laughs> Point zero zero something in miles, I guess, in reverse. What a so, piece of shit! <laughs> uh. um, so then, let's get into more detail of this one. Um, <laughs> so Look at the picture. <laughs> I uh, <laughs> I decided before looking more in depth to it, I'd like make my own assumption of what these little things on the on it might mean <laughs> so um <laughs> for the listeners that can't see so basically i've got this picture of the mayas tanker and i've got there's like a person standing next to it and I've it, like comes these, to I, <laughs> it comes up to his elbow
0: it comes up to his elbow yeah
1: um yeah. and basically there's like there's like all these tools attached to it. There's like there's like a shovel, and then there's, there's a pickaxe. Like a, there's a pickaxe, and there's like I don't know what that other one is.
0: One of those scalpels? scalpel. It looks like a scalpel.
1: A really large scalpel. Yeah, but <laughs> I think not, it's made of wood.
0: It looks like it's made of wood, though. It,
1: it does look like it's made of wood. There's no, I couldn't find a colorized version of this photo. You, you don't say. But, um, that,
0: that, that's because it's a <laughs> shameful, shameful photo. <laughs>
1: Anyway, yeah. that's kind of like attached to the side of the tanker. So I was like, yeah, hmm, yeah. "Backup weapons?" But no, they're just tools.
0: <laughs> right.
1: I don't know if it gets probably, stuck.
0: Probably like, for it... digging out. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, yeah. This this tiny little nugget of a of a it's not a tank. I'm not going to call it a tank. I refuse. <laughs> um, I could see that getting getting bogged down pretty easy but at the same time why would you need the tools i feel like this man could have just pushed it out of the hole that it got stuck in <laughs> what a joke
1: yeah um so and then like at the front it's got a little uh mounted gut or well, a turret i suppose or gun, p- pew pew gun whatever you want to call it
0: yeah <laughs> um
1: and then like i i looked at the wheels and i'm like I looked at the chain specifically. I'm like, because of its size, I'm like they look like glorified bicycle wheels. They really do. I just right. <laughs> um Yeah.
0: I mean the so... the man himself looks embarrassed.
1: He does. He looks it like he's he doesn't, <laughs> he doesn't want to be there. <laughs> he looks like he's being forced to be there. <laughs> um so there's some these are some more images. Like you could probably see a little bit more detail from like the, the back is open the front. Yeah. Yeah. My next image kind of shows, um, someone in it, but I just wanted to show this one first as like a comparison, another size comparison.
0: Why is there a team and, of two? Um, don't tell me that two people fit in this stand.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Def two people definitely don't fit in that thing. Um, uh, all right. yeah. So anyway, that's just a little more visual representation. And then here we have, someone getting in it (laughs) (laughs)
0: look at his back (laughs) my first
1: thought looking into this i'm like that would seriously hurt your back getting into that thing um where's the floor (laughs) there's no floor yeah (laughs) listen 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 (laughs) basically the Myers would provide um the soldier with a mobile she- shield to cover them from fire. So this is essentially what the MICE really was. It was a self-propelled mobile armoured shield. Oh so like it, it certainly wasn't a tank in the conventional sense, um, despite having very similar features. It was armoured, powered and fully tracked, but that was about as far as the similarities went, were uh were met um and there's no seats so
0: <laughs> yeah so that explains the speed though the the, the traverse mm-hmm. speed was this tank had to be slow enough for a full-grown man to yeah. squat down and walk like a duck behind it
1: yeah i mean your poor knees as well as your back What is stupid
0: stupid piece <laughs> of equipment It's, it's I completely
1: hate this impractical <laughs> i I don't know how anyone would have thought that would be a good idea, but anyway. <laughs> good God! Look but at you've that. seen that. Now imagine, right? Oh, no. This is this is a really, I I had to do this, but as soon as I had it in my head, I'm like, I have to put it. Okay. Oh God! The mis down rainbow.
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's Rainbow <laughs> Road from Mario Kart. <laughs> You photoshopped, Photoshop I'm not going to call it a tank, <laughs> on Rainbow Road with Mario. But what's funny is they're in first. <laughs> it says right there they're in first.
1: But there's no one else on the track. It's just them.
0: <laughs> no, there's people. Look at the
1: map. Yeah, I know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> they're in first. What a yeah
1: yeah anyway
0: equipment. i hate i so, hate everything about what i'm looking at
1: <laughs> so that's the another variation of the italian tankette moving on no. to some honorable mentions so we Whoa. have the tricycle tank mine exploder of 1944 um so basically this was a m4 sherman medium tank um okay. which was used in numerous battles. Um, by the United States and some other Western allies during World War II. Um, Its productions continued from 1941 to 1945, and 49,234 units were produced. Why? Yeah, why? It had several variants. (laughs) What? (laughs) Crazy. It looks like a giant tractor. It does. With it does
0: it looks like farm <laughs> equipment with a turret
1: <laughs> <laughs> literally wow um it had several variants and there were some M4 Sherman based vehicles including um the this was so this was basically a variant and it's the T10 variant um uh, it was a remote controlled unit like oh. how cool is that remote controlled as well <laughs> for,
0: for that time that's pretty interesting actually
1: yeah, that's really fascinating. Um wow. I didn't even think they had that kind of technology, but that's really cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, its underside was thickened with 25 millimeters of steel, and the yeah. sides were adapted to give room for the huge 96-inch wheels. Um, the, real, the rear wheel had a diameter of about 72 inches, and it weighed 116,400 pounds and could attain a maximum speed of three kilometers per hour whilst clearing mines and 10 kilometers on per hour on a clear road. Okay. Um, okay. The T-10 was tested in 1944, but was rejected due to its heavy weight and related drawbacks. So it's a bit of a loss because considering they produce like almost 50,000 of them. But, right.
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: Um. I thought that was quite fascinating. Uh, I mean,
0: but it it was aimed at protecting human lives, right? That, and and that, oh that's yeah, it. you have a remote-controlled, heavily armored mine exploder that that doesn't require yeah. uh, human human uh, pilot
1: endangerment, or yeah, or
0: endangerment. Right. So I, I I get the concept. I can see why they would have invested in something like that.
1: Yeah, for sure. It's a shame that it didn't work out, though. Um, uh, I reckon yeah. it would have. I don't know if um, a couple of mines would have destroyed it completely. I don't know if I mentioned that. Um, I don't know. Really. Yeah, but mm-hmm. interesting. Okay, the next one, we have the Praying Mantis tank, which I thought was very interesting look. Um, so basically... The Pang Mantis tank was a 1943-1944 design and it was an attempted variant of the Universal Carrier, which was the British Armoured Tracked Vehicle introduced in 1940 for transporting supporting uh, support equipment and personnel. And the Mantis was kind of an, an attempt to produce an armoured vehicle that could fire over, over obstacles. Um, and initially it was just designed to carry one person. Um and the the idea was to drive the praying mantis up to hedge groves or walls, raise the gun and fire over the barrier from a safe position. Um, but after some trials, it was rejected in 1944. Um, although the praying mantis survives in the Bovington Tank Museum in Dorset, Southwest England. Um, so horrible mentions. Didn't make it to battle. but Good
0: ones. Good ones.
1: Yeah. Interesting. Um, the next one is a German invention, a very interesting style. Oh my! Armored fighting vehicle. Oh my! Yeah. So, uh, any comments <laughs> before we proceed? It, uh, <laughs>
0: no, please take take.
1: Yeah, go take ahead. Lead okay. on that
0: because my
1: god. <laughs> um. So this was called the. Panzer. Uh Again, I'm very sorry if that I pronounced that incorrectly. Basically, Kugelpanzer literally means spherical tank. Yeah. Um, it was a <laughs> it, it, it was a one man reconnaissance tank prototype with a, an armored shell and viewpoint, um, and it was one of the most like bizarre armored fighting vehicles ever built obviously like it looks alien almost it, um, it
0: really does that's the best way to put it i mean between the uh, tiny little i think that's a view slot in the front i think so yeah and then there's this tiny little wheel in the back uh yeah yeah
1: like, okay. like when i first looked at this i was like i feel like whoever is in this would get really dizzy like i don't know how that works like does it roll like a tire does it
0: Uh, well there's a there's a tiny stability wheel in the back i think the sides just move and i think that centerpiece which would house the pilot remains stationary
1: right okay but even then
0: looking at it it doesn't look like it should be able to move that way it just it
1: It honestly doesn't look like it can move at all when you look at this picture alone it looks like (laughs) um well there you have it the driving mechanism had actually been removed by the uh, from the vehicle by the authorities apparently. Um, so it is assumed that the engine was mounted behind or under the operator. So there you go. That's an explanation there. Um, so a small directional wheel was installed at the rear to steer two circular tracks fitted to the sides of the sphere. So there you go. Yeah. Um, and the ball tank might not, not have been intended to be a platform um, for offensive weapons, I guess. So what Maybe the it fuck was, more... was it for? Well, I I think it's literally just it was just for reconnaissance. But at the same time, like that doesn't look it. It looks very obvious, and how, it doesn't look.
0: <laughs> how fast did it go?
1: Um, I don't think I found that information. But by the looks of it, it doesn't look like it goes very fast at all.
0: What an odd.
1: That was another. <laughs> What is that? It, but we were—it's the same one. It's just a different variation. No, um,
0: no, that's not the same one. Uh, yeah,
1: it's what the website said. It's—it's a—it's another prototype. Look at the size of that thing. thing. <laughs> yeah. Anyway.
0: So there we have the land vehicles for this episode. But as we know, not all vehicles are wheeled or constructed specifically for land. We have maritime vessels and. More recently in the timeline of human history, we have flying machines. As Walla well knows, not all birds were meant to fly.
1: hmm.
0: See Emu, for example. Unfortunately, it's, a bird. It's, it's a bird.
1: it's not a unfortunately,
0: bird. <laughs> unfortunately, some of these ugly and odd bastards made it into the air. So for our first aircraft, we're going to look at the Curtis Wright VZ 7. Where to begin with this one? Um, for starters, the aircraft was known as the Flying Jeep. And looking at the photo, you could probably tell why. From that alone, you should already be imagining a rugged utilitarian piece of machinery built for a specific purpose, but lacking in the eye candy department because there's nothing attractive about this photo. It's it's just generally, it's kind of interesting to look at.
1: Yeah, I mean, for me, it reminds me a little bit of the uh, Bell 47 helicopters off MASH.
0: Oh, if yeah. anyone
1: knows what I'm referring to, essentially, like for me, it looks like the same thing, except just without the glass dome over the top, right? Um, which is interesting because, yeah.
0: The question is, what what was this for? VZ7 was developed specifically for the Army Transportation Corps as a light utility vehicle. So its intended use was for moving supplies. It, it's sort of like an aerial pickup truck is the best way to, to describe it. Mm-hmm. The VZ-7 was delivered to the United States Army in 1958, um, after, after the Korean War. So there you go. Of simple design, the VZ-7 was crewed by one to two crew members, which, looking at the photo, one's enough. Where
1: this second person sit?
0: I have no idea. i I guess in the cargo space like i don't know
1: (laughs) unless there's a seat right next to him oh i don't know there's not yeah no
0: there's not it was rated a 320 kilowatt turboshaft engine it had a wingspan of 4.87 meters a length of 5.18 meters and it was 2.83 meters in height not not a big aircraft at all uh it weighed 952 kilograms or just over 2,000 pounds. It reached a max speed of 51 kilometers per hour, about 31 miles per hour, and could fly to a max ceiling of 60 meters or just about 200 feet. The frame, I mean, the the frame's pretty simple, right? Um, Mm. It's this rectangular central airframe with four vertically mounted propellers attached in a square formation. Everything this thing needed to fly was actually part of or mounted to that central airframe that airframe, that rectangular structure. Very, very simple and very intentional. And the fuselage had the pilot seat, the flight controls, the fuel and lubricant tanks, and the engine all attached. The vehicle was short-lived, obviously. Uh, according to Aviasstar.org, the craft were capable of hovering and forward flight and proved relatively stable and easy to operate, However, the design proved consistently incapable of meeting the altitude and speed requirements specified by the Army. And both examples, because there were two different prototypes made, were subsequently withdrawn from service and returned to the manufacturer in mid one thousand, nine hundred and sixty. So these didn't last long. Uh, For further reference, I I thought it was interesting. The vehicle is so critically acclaimed, and I say this with sarcasm, there's actually one VZ-7 at the United States Army Aviation Museum in Fort Rucker. It's not on display. They didn't have enough room for all of their aircraft, and for obvious reasons, this one did not make the cut as a must-see attraction. So it, it it's it's just not critically acclaimed. This thing, this thing yeah. sucks. <laughs> um, I actually went to the museum's website for further information, and even on the website, there's no information on this fucking <laughs> aircraft. It actually shows up as archived. That's all it says. <laughs>
1: They're just they like, you give... need to get rid of all information on this immediately. <laughs>
0: yeah, they just, do, it's like, nobody cares. Uh, they didn't give it any digital space, and they didn't give it any physical space in their museum. <laughs> <laughs> Essentially, <laughs> they kind of viewed the thing as a piece of shit, so. Oh, my
1: goodness. That is
0: the legacy of the VZ7. Um,
1: I actually yeah. like it. It looks I, cool. I mean, for short-term distance travel, I didn't think it looks that bad. I, I mean, it's like not it safe. safe.
0: No, God, are you serious? like, like? Could you imagine? Like, look at the pilot. Like, he's got, he's got like a like a raised left and arm, uh, left and right armrest where it's like, don't lean too hard. <laughs> You'll fall. Or if you,
1: yeah, if you lean too weirdly in one direction, you're out of there. Like, yeah. seatbelt or not, my goodness. So
0: I mean, that, that, that's kind of it. Um, uh, that, that takes us into our next, our next (laughs) aircraft, the Goodyear Inflatoplane. (laughs) I can't believe I, I can't believe I just said that. The Goodyear Inflatoplane. Um, honestly, this one makes the VZ-7 seem like a wild success. It really does. (laughs) I'm going to ask you, uh, Walla, do you want to take a guess at what the fuselage was made of?
1: Uh. I have no idea rubber, plastic, I don't know
0: <laughs> okay, okay, so it, it I mean, it's a balloon, right? yeah, the material they used was actually fabric what this is, yeah, this was an all fabric inflatable plane
1: wow now, okay i'm gonna
0: I'm gonna preface this by saying the plane was not successful, but the fabric is incredibly relevant, and we'll get there, okay. According to an article written in Plane and Pilot magazine, quote, in the nineteen fifties, the US Army contracted Goodyear to design an inflatable small aircraft for surveillance, aerial reconnaissance, and do-it-yourself rescues. I really want to highlight the do-it-yourself rescues. That's gonna that's that's the main point here. Yeah. The rescue scenario involved airdropping a deflated containerized plane to stranded pilots so they could pump it up and fly themselves <laughs> out. End quote. <laughs>
1: Uh, Here you go, rescue yourselves! All right.
0: So that the last bit there, so they could pump themselves, so they could pump it up and fly themselves out. This this caught me off guard, (laughs) and it sounds like same for you and probably our listeners. my thing was there's a lot of assumption in this specifically that the pilots mm. were in any shape after, after becoming stranded or crashing in enemy territory where they could pump up yeah. a fucking plane balloon and fly it in the first place.
1: Yeah, exactly. And what kind of freaking pump is it? Is it like one of those manual pumps? So like, would they have to, Oh, who knows? It's like, that's crazy. <laughs> I believe
0: it was a manual <laughs> pump. We're going to get to that.
1: <laughs> right. So, so you could, yeah, as you said, like you'd imagine like these people could have been injured and they're just like, nah. You can just pump it up yourselves. You'll be right. What
0: if they uh, broke their arm?
1: Exactly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> or, <laughs> what if
1: they're drowning? Like yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> So, uh. all right. So, <laughs> just just like, just like the previous, the VZ7. We're looking at an aircraft from the 1950s. I really want to point out here: um, the United States Air Force officially became its own branch in 1947. After World War II and this is after years of political pissing contest. Uh, notice that the v VZ, the VZ7 and now this genius idea inflato plane both occurred in the 1950s and were both u s army contracted aircraft. It's almost like the army had a bad breakup when they had to get rid of their air wing, and I feel like these are like rebound relationships because these planes <laughs> are, these are terrible <laughs> these are terrible. <laughs> uh, but back back to the fabric. um The fabric I was I was really curious about the fabric. What I learned was that it was a new fabric designed by Goodyear, and this is I don't I don't know about in Australia, but Goodyear here in the states is known for tires.
1: Yeah, no, that was going to be my question. They're a tire company, right? Yeah.
0: Yes, this is the same Goodyear. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So they designed this new fabric, and they called it AirMat. Airmat provided, uh, str- I don't, I, I, I want to say that means like air material. I don't know. It sounds really generic. Something but,
1: like that, probably. Right.
0: But it provided structural strength and shape integrity when inflated, which is what was required for an inflatable plane. So Goodyear built this prototype. They designated it the GA-33, and they did it in just 12 days. So apparently when it was deflated, it fit into a Jeep. So I guess a VZ-7. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> a flying Jeep and deflated. It weighed only 250 pounds. Here's how the concept was supposed to work. The plane would be airdropped containerized to a stranded pilot along with a pump. So there, there you go. Mm -hmm. And here, here's, here's the answer to your question. They would hand pump the inflato plane halfway. And that took an average of 10 minutes, assuming they were not injured or disabled from their crash. (laughs) Then they would start up the 40-horsepower Nelson H59 engine to finish the inflation process. I, I, I thought this was kind of cool. The engine was actually attached to the top of the wings, the inflatable wings, and it served two functions. The first was to spin the propeller for flight, but it also pumped up the aircraft after the pilot hand-pumped it halfway, and it only required eight-pound-square-inch of pressure. But yeah, so the pilot, and, and whatever condition they were, had to hand pump and inflate this plane for about 10 for minutes.
1: 10 minutes. That's crazy. <laughs> no it's, words. It's just like...
0: It's so stupid.
1: <laughs> so impractical. In my it opinion. seems that way.
0: It, it, it does. Yeah. It seems super impractical. impractical but the, the crazy part is, there was a test pilot uh, who was a test pilot for Goodyear. His name was mm. Richard Ulm. And he actually had really nice things to say about the plane from the aforementioned article, Richard Alm remarked that the aircraft provided a cushy ride and noted that it's unique construction dampened out the bumps while taxiing the aircraft. He also reported that the plane handled well, similar to a glider and quote, the aircraft only needed 250 feet for takeoff, which is not a lot. And it had a landing rolling distance of about 350 feet. Uh, I found this a bit remarkable. It could fly up to 6,500 feet in the air and had a range of 275 miles with an average cruise speed of 50 miles per hour. The inflato plane, uh, research for the inflato plane was discontinued by the United States Army in the 1970s. Here we are in Vietnam. Um, As there was another aircraft that fit the role of rescue craft, but also did much more. So going back to MASH, going back to Korea, going back to the VZ-7, the helicopter was obviously much more efficient both for rescue missions and for the transport of material than the VZ7 or the Goodyear Inflatoplane. However, the fabric uh, did not fall to the wayside. Airmat itself saw continued use with NASA. NASA became interested in the material and used it to design to design re-entry shields and inflatable wings for orbiter transition as they entered thin atmospheres. So while the inflatoplane wasn't a wild success, it left Quite a quite a legacy, honestly. But similar to the VZ7, some of these planes were donated to museums. The first prototype that was already mentioned, the G A thirty three, was donated to the Ohio History of Flight Museum. Guess what, Walla? What? That museum no longer exists. What? You can't see the G A thirty three. You also can't on. see the V Z seven. Both of these it's... planes are, are in places where you can't it's... fucking see them.
1: Is there a higher conspiracy here?
0: <laughs> I think somebody—it's almost like somebody had a vendetta. <laughs>
1: like, yeah, can see the like, <laughs> this never happened. You had no proof. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Stop. Yep,
0: they—they—they they, they both have fallen, fallen uh, into obscurity. So, there it is—the—the the, the GA thirty-three Goodyear inflatable plane and the VZ seven flying Jeep.
1: Very interesting indeed. So, I have some interesting pieces of aircraft to bring. If it's anything Um, like your tanks, I'm I'm excited. (laughs) Uh, Guess what this is called? (laughs) I thought I might make it a little bit more interesting and see if you can guess what this might be called. In a nickname sense, not exactly what it could have been called. The Flying Saucer.
0: The Flying Saucer.
1: Uh, No, no, no. Close, but no. I don't know. The, 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 it is. It...
0: <laughs> no, go.
1: No? Okay. All right. Um, behold, the flying pancake airplane. Oh, come
0: on. <laughs> <laughs> I was so close.
1: <laughs> you were very close. The
0: flying pancake.
1: <laughs> um, so what it was actually called, though, was the Vought X5 5U flying flapjack and it was an experimental United States Navy fighter aircraft damn it, designed it would be the
0: United by... States
1: yeah. <laughs> and the navy of course Oh. Um, <laughs> it was designed by Charles H Zimmerman for Vought um and for those who don't know what Vought is it is an aerospace company um during World War II this one is quite strange it also looks like a flying giant stingray I mean it probably looks a bit more like a stingray than a pancake when you think about it, but pancake was funnier. <laughs> it reached a maximum speed of five hundred and fifty miles per hour. Um really? it had a maximum yeah. And it had a maximum takeoff weight of nearly eighteen thousand seven hundred and eighty pounds, which is quite impressive.
0: Yeah, it doesn't it doesn't um, look like it would weigh that much.
1: No, not at all. It looks really light when you think about it. Yeah. Um, it looks like it, j- it could just float on the water too, like one of those sea airplanes. It really does, yeah. If, yeah. So the, the airplane only needed one pilot, but it could hold two 1,000-pound bombs, six fifty .50-caliber machine guns, or 40 20-millimeter cannons. Um, but there is a, an earlier prototype of this plane uh, currently in the Smithsonian apparently, so you can go see that for yourself if you like. Okay, so the next one is the North American F-82 Twin Mustang airplane. Basically what it means by, like, twin Mustang, so it's like a – I'm going to try and describe it here. Uh, It's like there's two airplanes attached to each other. The North American F-82 Twin Mustang is the – apparently the last American piston – piston-engined fighter ordered into production by the United States Air Force. Um, It is based on the North American P-51 Mustang, um, and the F-82 was originally designed as a long-range escort fighter for the Boeing uh, B-29 Superfortress in World War II. Initially, it was intended as a very long-range escort fighter, uh, the F-82 was designed to escort the Boeing B-29 uh, Superfortress bombers on missions exceeding 2,000 miles or 3,200 kilometers um, from the Solomon Islands or Philippines, or so from the Solomon Islands or from the Philippines to Tokyo. It,
0: it's really interesting that this was their concept, <laughs> rather than let's send in yeah. two planes. <laughs> let's Let's connect them to sb 29 it's like
1: (laughs) that's that's why that's that's exactly my question like when i first looked at it at this i was like how is this even supposed to work like even having two pilots like like i just have a really hard time trying to understand this working practically like Hmm. how
0: and and that's my question could they both drive Or did one shoot? Yeah. Did one navigate? Like, what, how were the roles divided?
1: Yeah, because I mean, like, if one of them wanted to shoot something, like, you'd think they'd have to turn the whole plane to that direction. Right. But like,
0: I don't know. But if if this guy wants to go to McDonald's and this guy wants to go to Burger King, (laughs) they take over each other's controls, you know what I mean? Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> could you imagine a pissing contest like we'll make it it's like we won't make it it's like i'm turning left well i'm turning right
1: i it kind of reminds me of those like um learner driver cars where you got like yeah. the driver <laughs> and then you got the passenger seat and the person in the passenger seat with like brake controls and stuff
0: right speed up no. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> no turn left i don't want to <laughs> okay.
1: oh man those two would have to be I don't know. They'd have to be working really well together for that, for that case. But, like, I feel it like looks the cool other- <laughs> as shit. It does look cool. Yeah. Anyway. On to the next one. <laughs> That's. spartan's like oh here we go again
0: (laughs) i just want to mention that the 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 aforementioned plane was the united states air force and so was this one so it wasn't just the army that was suffering from bad breakup relationship you know decisions here what the hell
1: (laughs) yeah so for the audio listeners our next one is the alien school bus which was produced by the U.S. Air Force in 1982. Disclaimer: It's just a nickname. It's not the actual name of the of the airplane. But I love I love the that X Files
0: was, photo you included there yeah. with, with uh, what's his name Fox Mulder. Mulder. There it is. Yeah. yeah. For
1: reference, there's a little image of him next to the plane saying, "Do you think I'm spooky?" <laughs> I like how the you put above, above the
0: plane, there. "The truth is out there." <laughs> Oh man.
1: Yeah. Um yeah, so this one is interesting. Uh you can start to see why it's interesting by the real shape of it. Um instead of a rounded shape like most of the commercial airlines today, um this one, which is called the Northrop Tacit Blue airplane, Um, which is the official name for it I I wouldn't consider Um,
0: this blue this looks like you know when you go into those bathrooms and it's like that weird mint green color yeah
1: yeah that's
0: that's bathroom mint green
1: bathroom (laughs) that's what I call it I cannot
0: cannot stand that shade (laughs) bathroom mint green for the listeners the audio listeners it's bathroom mint green you guys know what I'm talking Uh,
1: about yeah (laughs) this airplane um it had more of a rectangular shape Um, and it was the only one of them that was ever built. Shocking. (laughs) Um, as I said, it was developed by the United States air force in 1982. Um, but at the time it was considered some of the best technology on the planet. Um, The Air Force wanted a low-observable surveillance aircraft that likely wouldn't be intercepted by radar um, and therefore could be successful near the front lines of battle with a high likelihood of survival. Um, So the Tacit Blue had several nicknames, and as I first mentioned, the Alien School Bus was one. Um, It was also called the Whale.
0: Uh (laughs) It looks like a Beluga. This is fair.
1: That's true. It does look like a beluga whale. And it had a gross weight of 30,000 um, pounds. Its maximum flying speed reached 290 miles per hour. And it was over 50 feet long. Um, and is currently housed at the National Museum of the United States Air Force uh, near Dayton, Ohio.
0: Dayton, Ohio. Uh, so maybe maybe that's where the GA-33 went when the Ohio History of Flight Museum closed.
1: Oh shit! Because you did that's say Ohio.
0: <gasps> yeah, maybe that's. Are we where uncovering we
1: are. a conspiracy here? Oh I my think goodness! So. It this makes it all more. <laughs> this we just might have been smaller. Ohio
0: consolidating its flight museum because. <laughs> yeah. How many do you need, really?
1: Yeah, that's true.
0: All right, so we've talked about land, and we've talked about air, but we still have maritime vessels. So uh, in this portion, we're going to go sailing. So to kick off our maritime vessels, we're going to start with the Novgorod, uh, a Russian monitor. Here is a naval oddity from a nation with a lengthy war history. Let's start off by briefly defining a monitor. What is a monitor? Um, Monitors were small warships characterized by slow movement armored hulls, and ridiculously large guns, uh, at least in proportion to their size. Uh, Monitor became a class of ship named after the original, the USS Monitor, an American ship used in the American Civil War. Monitors, essentially, they saw some use in World War I uh, and World War II, and even in Vietnam, so a little more recent. The Novgorod uh, was a Russian Monitor that saw service in 1874. And even for a monitor, it was unique. The Rod was circular in design, and it was the only one ever built, for obvious reasons that we're going to get into. So looking at the photo, um, what are your first thoughts?
1: It looks like a a really large buoy.
0: Yeah, it does look like, yeah, a large buoy. That's a good way to put that.
1: Buoy, Buoy, yeah, that thing
0: from militaryfactory.com quote, the idea of a circular battleship emerged in an 1868 report from scottish shipbuilder john elder and evolved by the royal navy's edward reed but it was not officially realized until rear admiral Andre popov of the russian navy pressed home the concept the design revolved no pun intended Around a shallow draft vessel capable of traversing low-level waters such as rivers and lakes, giving it proper access to more battlefronts than traditional well-armed warships could ever reach, quote. From the beginning, the Novgorod had issues with stability in waters that were not placid, and the accuracy of its main gun was essentially shit. Russia built this armored Pi-10 to help protect Black Sea and Dnieper River positions. Uh, For reference, the Dnieper runs through Ukraine's center. The vessel was named after the Russian city of Novgorod and constructed in St. Petersburg between 1871 and 1874, after which the vessel began formal service in the Russian Navy. The vessel was 101 feet long. It was powered by six compound expansion steam engines. Yeah, this thing was steam-powered, and it was fed by eight boilers. The ship maxed out at 6.5 knots. If and only if conditions were perfect. For reference, six point five knots is only seven and a half miles per hour, or twelve kilometers per hour. No, monitors were not fast, but this this is not much faster than that piece of shit tank that you brought up earlier.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I I mean, does it need to go fast, really?
0: Well, yeah. You know what? We're gonna get into that.
1: Okay. All
0: right. So we're going to look at the armament that the, uh, the Novgorod, this, this fucking pizza, carried.
1: Pizza! <laughs> it does look like a flirting pizza. <laughs>
0: Primary guns were 280mm rifled guns. Yet, get ready, these were still muzzle loaded. Basically what that means is the fire rate was not spectacular. The guns were on a rotating turntable which allowed for greater traversal and could be aimed and fired in unison or independently. Uh, It could also carry a spar torpedo weapon. Um, Torpedo sounds great. Spar torpedoes, not so great. To break that down, what a spar torpedo was (laughs) is this was a weapon that consisted of a bomb placed at the end of a long pole, known as a spar, and attached to the boat. The weapon... Was used by running the end of the spar into the enemy ship. basically, you, you, you've got this long stick with an explosive device attached to the end, and the vessel, in this case, the the, the, the Novgorod would have to get close enough to the enemy vessel so that they could, with their stick <laughs> stab the, the enemy the enemy's <laughs> boat. So yeah, like so
1: Sounds or, like a sticky n-
0: bone. Yeah, a sticky bomb. So spar torpedoes were often equipped with like a barbed spear at the end that would like pierce the hole of like a, a wooden ship. And then it would fuse and it could be detonated.
1: Wow. Alright.
0: But if we remember, the Novgorod only moved at about seven and a half miles per hour. <laughs> <laughs> so you stick the bomb and it's a slow walk to get the fuck away before the bomb explodes. It's <laughs> like i don't know
1: surely <laughs> they would have a- a- accounted for that surely
0: i don't know i don't know <laughs> because you've got muzzle loaded cannons 288 or uh, 280 millimeter rifled guns that are muzzle loaded and then you've got a spar torpedo where you gotta stick it and slowly drift away from the enemy <laughs> <laughs> i'm just you saying saw Com-
1: nothing <laughs>
0: combat effectiveness, I, I I would not use that as a characteristic to describe this floating pizza. I just wouldn't do it. <laughs> but that brings in a question. Did it ever see combat? And the answer is once. During the okay. Russo-Turkish War, fought between 1877 and 1878, the Novgorod was stationed at Odessa. Uh, and, and the Novgorod, during the Russo-Turkish War and the port of Odessa and the bay here functioned as a glorified floating shore battery. They didn't even send it out. Like it just kind of sat in the <laughs> bay. Yeah. Uh, they did increase its armament with a cannon and uh, another cannon, and it left it in the bay near Odessa. Post-war, the Novgorod saw an armor upgrade and was designated as a coastal defense ironclad. In other words, they spent a shit ton of time and money on this, on this pizza. And then they tried to justify its existence for a couple, like a decade. It's
1: an expensive pizza.
0: (laughs) They ended up scrapping it in 1911. No further circular monitors were ever produced.
1: Speaking of monitors, I also have one that I would like to bring. Um, to bring forward, and that is from the Italians. Um, I should have looked up how to pronounce this, but I didn't, and I forgot. This is a monitor developed by Italy in 1916. The ship was built in 1917, but in 1916, um, Italy had a little bit of a problem. They had cancelled the construction of their battleship, Cristoforo Colombo, um, but still had these, uh, um, sorry if I got that wrong, um, but they still had these spare 15-inch battleship guns lying around. Um, so what do they do? Well, essentially, with the spare torpedo uh, boat engines and a random ass slab of concrete, they made a monitor. <laughs> um, that was that was literally a part of the information. They, they actually had just some random piece of concrete that they use. Um, so this monitor would go on to serve in both World War One and World War Two, uh, but was captured by Germany in a conflict uh, and renamed Beaver. Uh, <laughs> what?
0: <laughs> what?
1: Yeah. Sorry, it, w- it was captured by Germany in World War II and it was renamed uh, Beaver. I don't know why. Maybe it's because of the, the no. way that.
0: No. I, There's I no, justification. Even... Sorry, this no. Is no justification. I'm sorry.
1: No. Look at it. It doesn't look like a beaver. Like I was thinking maybe like a beaver dam. Maybe it looks like a floating beaver dam. No.
0: Wow. Maybe. <laughs>
1: um,
0: Fucking Germans.
1: Yeah. I, I don't have too much more information on that one. I just thought that was really interesting. Um, the next one we have is a Grillo class tracked torpedo motorboat. Um, so this motorboat was developed in 1918, um, and basically the treads of the Grillo class um, was were lined with hooked chains that digged into obstacles um, such as harbor barriers and basically pulled uh, torpedo boats over them. Um, this initially showed promise in testing, but was, uh, apparently less than stellar in the, in practice. So on May 13th, 1919, this, uh, motorboat attempted a stealth mission. Um, only do have the element of surprise foiled by the clanging of those signature chains? Um, <laughs> it, was, it was spotted and destroyed while climbing stealth over mission. the harbor's stealth missions,
0: Yeah. Oh, shit.
1: Um, Yeah, so there we have a little bit of info on an interesting, potentially over-the-top motorboat. Come on. (laughs) So (laughs) um, let's take a a look at something that I have a little bit more information on um, that also tried to be stealthy. So for the audio listeners, like for you, Spartan, how would you begin to describe what this looks like, just out of curiosity?
0: it's like an a-frame imagine i'm trying to take a taco shell like a hard shell taco shell flip it over and drop it in a bowl of water (laughs) it's an upside down taco shell
1: uh an upside down taco shell stealth stealth taco shell Really? Stealth, this
0: is this is the Lockheed Martin United States Navy Stealth Taco.
1: <laughs> <laughs> they have to rename that right now. <laughs> That's the new name for it. They officially. should. <laughs> <laughs> um oh my. anyway, so this variation of it is um called the Sea Shadow, which is an IX uh, 529. Um, and it was a, an experimental ship built by uh, Lockheed Martin in the 1980s to test to test the stealth technology used on the F-117 uh, Nighthawk for possible use on submarines. In the early 1980s, the vessel was built modularly under tight secrecy by different manufacturers and assembled inside the Hughes Mining Barge, or that HMB, at Redwood City, California. There, the HMB would be moved out to sea in the dead of night and halfway submerged to let sea shadow out to be tested without being overly exposed to public observation, quote. The Hughes mining barge was developed in tandem with the ship Glomar Explorer as part of Project Azorium. The sharp angles of the sea shadow made the ship appear smaller on radar and informed not only the design of the deckhouse of the Arleigh Burke destroyer, but the ship of the antagonist in the 1997 James Bond film, Tomorrow Never Dies. Ah. So that was an interesting fact. The ship was based in San Diego, California, for for years before the ship was sold for scrap in 2012.
0: Um, That's too bad. I, I, I kind of, I just want to slide yeah. down the side of it.
1: <laughs> that would be really fun. Yeah.
0: Well, that is all we have for this episode, folks. This was a fun one to research, to write, and to record, and we sincerely hope you enjoyed the lighthearted topic as much as we did. We also want to mention that we hit 400 downloads um, this past week for our first six episodes. Um, We're very grateful to each and every one of you for that. We truly didn't anticipate the level of support that you all have shown us, so thank you. As always, if you would like to continue the discussion or add to it, you can find us on the Historical Studies Military History Discord, as well as the Hardtack Podcast Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, all available through our link tree found in the episode description. You may also email us at hsmilitaryhistory at gmail.com with any comments, questions, or suggestions for future episodes. Please take the time to leave us a review, and don't forget to hit that subscribe button. Tune in next Wednesday for Episode 8, Cryptography, Operation Magic, the U.S. military's efforts at cracking Japanese military and diplomatic codes during World War II. Thank you for listening, and remember to keep your hardtack dry.